Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Welcome to Venture Stories from Village Global. I'm Ann Duane, co-founder and partner, joined today by Lucas Fagno, my fellow investor here at Village, for a conversation with the inspiring Andy Rockliffe. Andy Rockliffe, as you might know, is co-founder and CEO of Wealthfront. Andy also serves as a member of the Board of Trustees and Chairman of the Endowment Investment Committee for the University of Pennsylvania, and he's a member of the faculty at Stanford Graduate School of Business, where he teaches courses on technology entrepreneurship. Previously, Andy co-founded the legendary Benchmark Capital one of the world's premier venture capital firms. Benchmark's invested in companies including eBay, OpenTable, Snapchat, Twitter, Uber, and much more. And Andy's led investments in Bluecoat Systems, Equinix, and Jupiter Networks. We wanted to kick off a little bit about Wealthfront. And can you share what was the insight that led you to start Wealthfront? Sure. Well, I had reached the point in my career at Benchmark where it was time to retire Uh, We have a unique structure at Benchmark in that it's an always equal partnership. And the only way to operate an always equal partnership is to make sure there's enough pie to go around. And the only way that you can do that is if the older partners get out of the way. The data is really clear in the venture industry that it's the younger partners who generally generate most of the uh, big returns. And having been a part of previous firms, I was we were uh, those young partners who generated the returns, and we didn't want that to happen to us. So we made an agreement when we got started that if any of us reached the point where we were not willing to go 110%, we had to raise our hand and opt out and not get any economics in future funds. This is a radical concept in venture capital. But Uh, We had the benefit of the legacy and the opportunity to invest in those future funds, which has worked out pretty well for me. So when I go to the office, which is seldom, my uh, new partners smile at me instead of gnashing their teeth because I'm soaking up equity that they're really uh, generating. So I was the second partner to retire. Uh, All of the founding partners have now retired and even some of the second generation of the benchmark partners have retired. And uh, I wanted to give back because I have a life that's well beyond anything that I ever could have imagined. And a big part of that was the institutions that I went to for school. So as you said, I became a trustee at University of Pennsylvania and I went on the faculty at Stanford and my wife and I started a a unique uh, and innovative cancer research funding initiative. So I was really happy doing that. One of my responsibilities as a trustee at Penn was to serve on the Endowment Investment Committee, which I now chair. And uh, the almost all the premier endowments were investors in Benchmark and my previous firm, Merrill Pickard, Anderson, and Iyer. So I knew all the people in that industry. And they all invest very similarly. And I think that the premier endowments are the best managed pools of capital in the world. But it's very manual what they do. And one day I was sitting in a meeting where the investment team was talking about how they make the sausage. And uh, it struck me that you could do an 80-20 on what they do by uh, automating uh, the endowment approach with funds. 
And uh, this was particularly interesting to me because uh, when I was a venture capitalist, many of the people that I recruited to my portfolio companies that went on to financial success would come to me for investment advice. And I could never tell them to do what I do because even with their success of making one to $5 million, they still couldn't afford the investment minimums associated with the best services. So I thought by doing this, I could democratize access to sophisticated investment management and financial advice. And I thought that was a social good. So I had to do it, but I had no desire to run it. So uh, this has not worked out at all the way I had intended. That's an amazing story. And I think it's, I don't know if you can call it retirement, if you're going to start a company and run it, but, um, but well, you've I done it. I had no intention um, of doing that. <laughs> Uh, so, Andy, uh, one, one of the things that's interesting is that um, Wealthfront's vision has evolved uh, over the years, right? Uh, and as of recent, uh, you announced a new crypto offering. Could you tell us a little bit more how your vision for Wealthfront has evolved since you started it and, and a little bit more about this uh, recent announcement? Sure. Well, the one thing that hasn't changed is our desire to make it delightfully easy to grow your wealth. You can't grow your wealth day trading. It's really entertaining, uh, it, but net of taxes and net of fees, it actually uh, doesn't work out very well. There's a tremendous amount of academic research that shows even professional investment managers don't outperform the market. So what makes an amateur think that they could do it? So we've always been focused on making it delightfully easy to grow your wealth. And over time, we've added more and more capabilities from where we started, which was a simple, diversified and rebalanced portfolio of low-cost index funds. Over time, we added uh, tax minimization strategies, which requires no effort on your part, but it pays for our fee anywhere th from thir three to 13 times over. Uh, those strategies are called tax loss harvesting and direct indexing. We've added free financial planning which uh, actually is much more capable than any human-based financial planner because it takes advantage of all the outside financial accounts you link to us. So we have more data on you and therefore can give you more uh, appropriate advice. We've added banking services to make it easier for you to move money immediately back and forth between your savings account and checking account and uh, investment account. And over time, we'll do more and more things. Now, about three or four months ago, we decided to open our platform up to address a broader market. Historically, we required that you use one of our recommended portfolios based on our assessment of your tolerance for risk, which is really the, the key driver of what one should have in their portfolio. But uh, what we learned through numerous experiments is that even if it's not in their best interest, people want control. And so rather than being too paternalistic, we decided to open it up and give people more control, either immediately or just uh, helping them know that they could have control if they wanted, so that they could change their asset allocation, they could uh, remove one of our recommended ETFs, they could add a new ETF, what have you. We've also added curated portfolios. So you can now get a socially responsible portfolio exclusively comprised of ETFs that represent uh, indexes that only follow socially responsible companies. We allow you to add uh, cryptocurrency unit trusts, 
in case you want access to that. So uh, over time, we'll open it up to more and more things, and we will offer more and more curated portfolios to make your life uh, delightfully easy again to grow that wealth. That's awesome. And I'm curious, with everything that we're seeing on the market nowadays, you mentioned how people want control, and but also how a lot of people do a lot of day trading and things that go against their own interest. Uh, you know, we're seeing the rise of what is now called meme investing. Do you see that as being something fundamentally new? Or do you think that what we're seeing with Dogecoin, AMC, GameStop, and, and some would say NFTs now as being, uh, you know, just a repeat, uh, just history re repeating itself? You know, uh, my investment idol is a guy named Howard Marks, who uh, is probably the premier distressed debt investor in the world. And he's also well known for his quarterly uh, letter to his investors. And uh, he loves to talk about how whenever someone says it's different this time, it's not. That everything, that history may not repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. So meme stocks are just uh, an, ins an example of momentum investing. And I think that momentum investing has really exploded. It exploded at the end of the 1990s. And then when the market went down a lot, it blew up and then people left it. And then whenever the market goes up by a large amount in a short amount of time, momentum investing tends to take over. And that's what we're seeing right now. So meme investing or investing in cryptocurrencies are just uh, classic examples of momentum investing. And Andy, we've heard you say multiple times, nothing about good investing feels right. Could you say more about what you mean there? Sure. Well, there are many examples. Well, for one, uh, it for most people, it feels comfortable to invest when the market goes up and to sell when the market goes down. But that's the exact opposite of what you should do. Contrarians are the ones who make money investing. There's a outfit called Dalbar that has done research for 40 years on this phenomenon of chasing the market. And what they found is that it costs the average investor anywhere between one and a half and three and a half percent per year on their overall portfolio return by pursuing that behavior. Uh, it might not feel right to consistently invest in a highly volatile market, but that's actually the way to get in at the lowest prices. So you shouldn't try to time the market. There's very clear research that shows that almost there might be five people in the world who are good at timing the market. But uh, no matter how many people tell you that the market is cheap or the market is expensive, you should absolutely ignore them and just keep on investing your savings quarter in and quarter out. Another example of uh, nothing about investing feels good investing feels right is I can't tell you how many times I hear the refrain, the market's at an all time high, so you shouldn't invest. Well, if the market uh, increases by approximately 8% per year over 80 years, then by definition, it should get it to an all time high every single year. So the fact that it's at an all time high is absolutely irrelevant but it sure affects the way people invest. 
So, Andy, to, to ask you a follow-up on this, um, Bill Gurley from Benchmark uh, back in 2015, 2016, uh, was talking about how, how the market was very heated and how value, valuations were going up. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I believe his saying was that you have to play the game on the field. If you think back on your time as, as, a, as a venture capitalist uh, and as an investor throughout your career, what, what is your perspective, uh, especially given everything that we're seeing in the markets in 2020 and 2021. You ignore the markets. It's very, very clear. Market price. <laughs> that, that you pay market prices. That's not what you're paid. You don't make money by buying cheap in venture capital. Every time I thought about price, I made a mistake. The Perhaps the best limited partner in the venture capital space is a firm called Horsley Bridge, which was co-founded by a fellow named Phil Horsley. And they have more data on venture capital than any institution I know. And Phil, who passed away last year, used to love to talk about how you should never pay attention to the market. You diversify across markets, but you just keep on investing. One of the things that differentiates the premier firms from everyone else is the premier firms keep investing no matter what the market environment is like. The crappy firms, which I think are well more than 80%, are highly affected by the state of the market. So you just have to absolutely ignore it. And I'll be very right. curious from a perspective of the individual investor as well, but also uh, the, the perspective of you know, customers uh, of Wealthfront. Andreessen Horowitz recently published this article called Buy and Hold No More uh, to, talk, to talk about the rise of the, of the individual investor and the retail investor uh, wanting more control. Do you think that if we see a downturn, and it's it's not a matter of if, right? It's a matter of when uh, for for that to repeat itself. Do you think that there could be, uh, you know, a, a, a shift towards passive passive investing again? Or absolutely, will, it, will we? <laughs> <laughs> There's no question in my mind because look, I've witnessed four day trading crazes in my career. I'm 62 years old. So I saw one in 82, 83. I saw another one in the late 90s, then in 07 to the beginning of 08, and now uh, with the current one. And in each case, the market had gone up by a very large amount in a short amount of time. And that makes people think they're much better investors than they are, because if you're not trained, you only think about absolute return rather than relative return. So in a market, so uh, Robinhood just uh, on their roadshow uh, published some data that said that their average client uh, had a portfolio that was up 30% from April 1st of 2020 to March 31st of 2021. Now, the people whose portfolios are up 30% think they're brilliant, I mean, think about it. How many times, how often can you have a portfolio that's up 30%? And by the way, that's just the average. So there are many people above that. Well, at the same time, the S&P 500 was up about 55%. So those people actually did horribly on a relative basis. Had they just bought the index fund, they would have had a return that was 25% higher which was almost 100% better than the return that they had. Now, if the market's only up 5%, those people are going to underperform by 25%, no matter if the market's up or down. So in that case, they're likely to be down 20%. 
So this is a very common mistake that people make in up markets. And it's usually young people who do it in, in almost every one of these cases. And the problem is young people don't want to listen to their parents who experienced it themselves when they were young people and made those mistakes. They have to make the mistakes for themselves. So they're going to learn uh, from this, which is a shame, but that's how we learn. And then, Andy, to, to talk a little bit more about the you know uh, momentum investing and speculation that's happening in, mar in the markets today, everybody wants to talk about crypto. Right, uh, it's it's the big topic of of the Q2 of 2021, uh, and as we said at the beginning, uh, Wealthfront announced that you can get exposure to cryptocurrency uh, through through uh, your Wealthfront portfolio. Um, I'll be very curious to hear uh, maybe how your position on crypto uh, has evolved or changed over time, and you know if you think that this is just you know, a consequence of everything that we're seeing in the markets, or if there are things about crypto that, 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 you, that you find are very exciting? Well, I think that crypto has the opportunity to revolutionize commerce because it's frictionless uh, transactions. But that is very different than whether I think it's a good investment or not. So speaking personally, I don't believe in speculations. I don't think that very many sophisticated investors speculate. I think that they invest. And the difference between an investment and a speculation is an investment has a cash flow that you can evaluate. A speculation does not have a cash flow. Think about it. Why is gold worth what it's worth? It's purely emotional. It's a speculation. Why is a commodity worth what it's worth? It's a, com it's a speculation. I don't personally believe that speculations have any role in one's portfolio. It's purely gambling. So uh, we made it available to people because forcing someone to stick to their diet is not a good way to get one to keep to their diet. If I make you eat your vegetables all the time, you're not going to want to eat that meal with me anymore. So letting you cheat on your diet, if, if you can cheat up to 10%, but 90% you're going to keep in logical investments, then that's well worth putting 10% of your money at risk with a speculation. So there, I have a very different feeling about uh, the role that blockchain will, will play in the delivery of services from my view of the currency as a speculation. Just because people use a currency doesn't mean that its value should go up. Right. Super interesting. And do you want to go next? Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, let's tune to some advice that you might have for founders. Um, you actually coined the term product market fit. And you, can you tell us a little bit more about how you define it and maybe how you thought about it at Wealthfront? Sure. I have benefited greatly from the work uh, that others have done in this field. And I, I get to stand on the shoulders of giants uh, I think that the concept was really developed by Don Valentine, the founder of Sequoia Capital. And the way that I explain it is based on some phenomenal work that Steve Blank did, first with the introduction of his book, Four Steps to the Epiphany, but really with the introduction of the use of the scientific or the application of the scientific method to business. So first on Valentine. So what I did was I put a name to it, and I think that made it far more digestible. What 
what Don did that was absolutely brilliant was he had this view that if a startup can screw something up, it will. It's just so under-resourced. It has so little capital and so few people relative to its opportunity that it's going to screw almost everything up. So the only way that it's going to succeed is if the market pulls the startup's products out of their hands. You can think of it as uh, no matter how much you screw up, you can't overcome the fact that the market pulls your product. That's product market fit. Now, Steve Blank came up with some terminology around the scientific method, which we all learn in third grade, about hypotheses that you need to test when you're starting out. And he broke them into two sets of hypotheses. A value hypothesis, which is the what, the who, and the how. What are you going to build? For whom is it relevant? And what's the business model? And then once you prove that, then and only then should you try to figure out how you can prove a growth hypothesis or how can you acquire customers cost-effectively. So to me, product market fit is the proof of your value proposition by virtue of customers pulling the product out of your hands. And Andy, um, one of the things that um, you've said before is that the worst word in the English language for entrepreneurs is maybe. Can you, can you expand on that? Sure. Maybe gives you false hope. So the, the thing that most people don't realize is that almost no company succeeds with its original value hypothesis or its original business plan. Now, everyone who goes on to succeed then revises history and makes it sound like the business on which they succeeded was what they always intended to do. And I think that's because consumers, be they enterprise or individuals, uh, prefer to buy from a company that always intended to solve their problem. So in contrast to what you read in most business books, the really great technology companies do not start by evaluating a market, coming up with, uh, trying to come up with solutions. Rather, they observe an inflection point in technology that allows them to build a product, as I did with brokerage application programming interfaces. And then they figure out, what can I do with that? Who cares? And the problem is the initial market that you think will care about your product, the who seldom does. So what Steve Blank and Eric Reese, who really improved upon the digestibility of Steve's idea with his lean startup book, basically what, what they did was come up with the idea that you iterate on the who, you don't iterate on the what. Now, most people, when they don't succeed at first, try to change their product. That's not a very good idea because then you've lost all, all of your differentiation, your insight about that technology inflection point that could create something different. Rather, the really successful companies iterate on the customer base to find someone who's desperate for what you have to offer. And the problem is if a customer says, well, I may buy your product, they almost never do. They only say that because they're not desperate. When you're trying to find product market fit, a person for whom the product is appropriate, you need to find someone who's desperate. Desperate people don't say maybe. Desperate people say, when can I have it? 
And that's why maybe leads many entrepreneurs to think, well, I have a chance, but they don't. And another great piece of, and this is both a uh, career but also personal advice that that I've heard you share before is uh, that you can learn more personally uh, from uh, failure, but you learn more professionally uh, from success. Can you tell us, you know, uh, what you mean by that, and, and how does that apply uh, both for your career but also your personal life? So, Lucas, think about it. When you hire someone for a job, for uh, your firm or for a portfolio company. Do you hire them for what they know to do or for what they know not to do? You hire them for what, from what you know that they will execute on, right? What they, what they can bring to the party and make you better. So uh, someone who has learned from success is, so, is multiples uh, more valuable than someone who has never tasted success because knowing what not to do doesn't help. That doesn't lead to success. So I think it is way, way overvalued professionally. I think you learn a lot personally from failure, but uh, I don't want to hire someone who hasn't tasted success. Can I ask you, I think Keith Raboy um, has this idea of investing uh, in the Y curve and not on the, on the X curve, meaning you invest by looking at the person's growth rate and their growth potential and their trajectory, not versus where they are now or what they've done before. How do you contrast those things uh, to, to this? And how do you think about that? I think that's another way of saying the same thing. Upside yeah. is all that matters. When we hire people at Wealthfront, one of the things that I counsel our hiring managers against is hiring people who will just do the job. Often hiring managers just want to fill the position because they're behind and they need to get going. The problem is that creates a lot of problems down the road because very few people are intellectually honest about their abilities. So if you hire someone who's only good enough to serve the job today, they're going to want to get promoted in a year or two. And if they're not good enough to grow, then that's going to turn into an HR problem. And then that's going to turn into a culture problem. So it's a lot better to try to hire people who have a lot of upside, who might have less experience, but have a lot more upside. And Andy, are there certain questions or um, flags that you look for that are good indicators of that? Well, one of the things that I look for is job, job choice. I think it is an incredible proxy for judgment. If, if you've chosen three crappy companies in a row, then you don't know what you're looking for. So what I find when, when talking to potential recruits, uh, one of the things that I really focus on early on in the discussion is, what are you looking for? What do you want to do next? And more often than not, the answer is, I'm not sure. Well, if anyone says, I'm not sure in an interview, the interview effectively is over for me. Because if they don't know what they want, then they're going to choose the highest salary. And that is a terrible way to make career decisions. You're going to miss out on equity, which is worth a huge multiple of cash, at least in the technology world. So, uh, I really want to know what someone wants to do. And by the way, if they want to work for a big company, that's fine. But if you don't know if you want to work for a big or a small company, you're really confused because they are not the same thing and you shouldn't try both 
because the people who are going to succeed in one are not going to succeed in the other. They require very, very different skill sets and personalities. So I want to know what the person wants to do and what they aspire to, you know, what they aspire to do. And Andy, um, as a founder now, has your vision changed on what you look for in an investor? Uh, and and what, what would be your answer to that, uh, you know, when going out to raise capital or advising your students uh, that are now founders? Well, you want someone who really believes in you, not in your plan, because your plan is going to change. You want someone who believes in you. And that's hard to do, especially in this momentum-driven world where people are really investing in businesses. They're not investing in people. And one of the things um, we uh, th- that we've seen change a lot in the venture capital industry over the last um, 10 to 20 years is this massive push uh, towards the idea of the operator investor. I don't and think that's changed at all. Can you tell us more uh, so how you think that has, uh, what your perspective is on that? Sure. Well, look, uh, John Doerr set the uh, example for what every venture capital firm wanted to hire. John joined, John, I think was the, is the, is or was the greatest venture capitalist of all time from my perspective. Uh, He was a practicing engineer for a couple of years, went to business school and then worked as a product manager uh, or uh, maybe even a systems engineer at Intel. And he got out of the gates very, very quickly and made some amazing investments immediately. And so he became the standard against which everyone was judged. So as long as I've been in the venture capital business, firms have wanted people with operating experience. The big misunderstanding is that premier venture capital firms don't want people with operating experience for their operating experience. That's what everyone thinks. As a matter of fact, that's the last thing you want, because if, you're, if you have to advise companies what to do with your operating experience, you're in a lot of trouble. It's the management team's job to decide what to do. It's your job as a board member to be a sounding board and to make sure they're being intellectually honest about their product market fit, but not to tell them what their product market fit should be or how they should do an email campaign or how they should do a particular advertising campaign or develop their products. The, The reason that operating experience is so valued by venture capital firms is that it's a proxy for network. All things being equal, if you have a better network than I do, you're going to fish in a better pond and you're going to make better investments. So if I've been in, if I was an executive at two very successful companies, then the odds are, number one, I was heavily recruited because people want that success on their team. And number two, I was probably highly sought after for my advice. Both of those are amazing proxies for network. Matt Kohler was the VP of marketing at LinkedIn and Facebook. That's what made him so attractive as a partner for Benchmark. But founders actually make, usually make terrible venture capitalists because operating, uh, what you learn in an operating role has nothing to do with investing. So it's the network that the venture capital firms want from the operating experience, not the operating experience per se. 
super interesting that um, I, we agree that some of those investors uh, with operating experience, myself included, um, want to take the wheel. And that's a bad trait in an investor. Or they, they evaluate an investment based on whether or not they would want to work at that company. That's really <laughs> bad. So the data on people who, are, who join the venture industry after age 40 uh, after a career in running businesses is actually very bad. Fascinating. Yeah. And I guess there might be a third uh, problem with it is they might be evaluating what would have worked years ago when they were active in the sector or something like that. So it's fascinating. That could be um, too. We often hear the adage that to make money in venture, you have to be not contrarian and right. Though it does seem in today's market that there's a lot of competition for um, deals, the sought-after uh, companies. And maybe in your experience, uh, Don Valentine from Sequoia, John Doerr from Kleiner Perkins, and yourself were competing against each other to back a given founders. Does that kind of invalidate the idea that to be successful in venture, you need to be contrarian? Not at all. Qu quite the contrary. You know, I mentioned Howard Marks earlier, and Howard is the one who came up with the framework that describes investing with a, a two by two matrix. Basically, uh, all of his all of his uh, quarterly letters are based on the same framework, where uh, you can evaluate an investment based on one dimension whether you're right or wrong, and the other dimension if you're consensus or non-consensus. Now, obviously, if you're wrong, you don't make money. But what most people don't realize is if you're right in consensus, uh, you don't outperform the market. The only way to outperform the market is by being right in non-consensus. Now, uh, there is a common misunderstanding about, and so uh, Bill Gurley was the one who actually turned me on to Howard Marks, and I've, uh, he's now become a core part of my teaching. And one of the great thrills of my life was when I joined the Penn Board of Trustees, I was uh, on the first evening introduced to Howard Marks, who was a trustee. And we've since become very good friends. So I've gotten to talk to him about this at great length. So it might be, you might perceive that things are consensus because they're competitive, but they actually seldom are. There might, you might compete with one or two firms, but you're not competing with many. You know, it, it's one of the most common things that I hear from my students starting companies who are raising money from venture firms is they all want to know what the distribution, the proof of the distribution plan. In other words, they want proof of the growth hypothesis, not the value hypothesis. To me, that's really, really dumb. The foundation of the house is the value hypothesis. And the proof of product market fit is exponential organic growth. If you can't grow organically, then it doesn't matter if you come up with a, a, a way to grow through advertising because you're not going to keep those customers. You can only grow organically through word of mouth. But the vast majority of venture capitalists are focused on businesses that have proven their growth hypothesis or have proven distribution. If distribution was the only thing that mattered, then Google should control every internet business. And they don't. So it's really, really dumb. So most venture capitalists don't understand what the important thing is. And the premier venture capital firms, one of the things that separates them is because they've had a lot of success, they know which leaps of faith to take. 
So they know when to try being non-consensus. If you haven't had success, you just know what to avoid. You don't know what to do. You don't have those hints of what might be working that has proven the value hypothesis before others might recognize that the value hypothesis has been proven. So many of the investments that Benchmark has made are cases where uh, all the, the partners are absolutely not in agreement. As a matter of fact, when all five partners want to do the deal, that makes us really, really uncomfortable <laughs> because it's too consensus and therefore the upside is probably limited. So let me share with you a story from the first annual meeting after Eric Vishria became a partner. Uh, Eric is a very has been with Benchmark about five years now and very successful investing primarily in infrastructure and really technology-heavy companies. Well, uh, your first year at Benchmark, uh, you have to get up in front of the limited partners at our annual meeting and tell them what you've learned and what was different from what you expected. So Eric told this great story that I think really captures the uh, issue you're raising, Anne. He told a story about how one day he came to the office and Peter Fenton said, hey, come and join me for this meeting. And it was with a new database company. And Eric thought, database company? Why am I going to see a database company? I mean, that's all played out. And so they're sitting in the meeting and Eric wants nothing more than to get out of this meeting as soon as possible. But Peter keeps asking more and more questions. And Eric's sitting there wondering, why is he asking so many questions? I just don't get it. And at the end of the meeting, uh, Peter said to the entrepreneurs, hey, when can we schedule another meeting, which is the sign you want to hear from a venture capitalist that they're really interested. And uh, so Eric took Peter aside to debrief because he was only on the job for a month or two. And he said, Peter, you didn't really like that, did you? And Peter said, absolutely. And Eric said, why? And Peter said, well, if their hypothesis is true about their technology advantage. Do you think this can be a very big company? Eric thought about it and said, yes. And Peter said, that's venture capital. So the fact that it's yet another database company isn't important. What's important is, was the insight that the entrepreneurs had something unique that could lead to something big such that there's an asymmetric outcome? Now, for most people, and by the way, Eric was the VP of product at uh, Opsware, the company founded by Andreessen and Horowitz, where I was on the board. Uh, he founded his own company. He's technically superb. And he has since gone on to an amazing track record in his first five years. Confluent, one of his first investments, just went public at a very big valuation. But even he had to learn this lesson. And in venture, you learn from your partners because you wouldn't know it on your own. You drink from a fire hose. And so Eric wouldn't have even taken that meeting. But Benchmark ultimately invested in that company. And I think they're doing very, very well. Fantastic. We so value the fact that you just shared those stories. And then you also shared that this misconception that distribution is more important than, say, organic growth. Are there any other common misconceptions that you see among students or aspiring entrepreneurs? Probably the biggest one is that you go after the biggest market first because everybody cares about building a big business. 
perhaps the most influential business book in technology in the 1990s was Crossing the Chasm, which was like it was to the 90s what the lean startup has been to the last 10 years or so. And uh, the book focused on something that the author, uh, Jeffrey Moore, called the technology adoption life cycle, that every product has a, a, a path through which its products are adopted. And even if it's the greatest product ever invented, it doesn't go from zero to a thousand overnight. You first have to get the early adopters to adopt the product. Then you can move into the pragmatists who buy on references. Then you can move into the conservatives who only buy once the product has become the standard. And then, and only then can you serve the laggards who usually don't even buy. But you have to start with the early adopters because you have to start with people who are desperate. More often than not, I see entrepreneurs want to go after larger companies because they could be lighthouse accounts to serve, to provide other references or provide references for other customers. But they're not going to buy your product without references. So it's a catch-22. And that's why you're far better served going after smaller customers in smaller markets who are desperate to build a beachhead from which you can then expand. I highly recommend Super. reading this book. It's an amazing uh, treatise on business. So uh, in addition to the Lean Startup and Crossing the Chasm, the other book that I highly recommend uh, that I wish I had read when I was a venture capitalist, uh, I think I would have been much better as the innovator's dilemma and, and the success, the follow on book, the innovator's solution, the innovator's dilemma focuses on the large company being disrupted. And by the way, the author Clay Christensen was the one who coined the term disruption, which is almost always misused. It actually has a particular definition that's really important, but uh, the next book was written from the perspective of the disruptor of the little company just getting started. And that innovator solution is a must read for every entrepreneur. Fantastic. Andy, perhaps as a closing question, what are you most optimistic about these days? <laughs> I'm generally optimistic. <laughs> I think in order to be a venture, I, I identify much more as an investor than I do as an operator. I think I'm pl I, I played the role of CEO, but I don't think I am a CEO. And in order to be a venture capitalist, I think you have to have amnesia to forget the mistakes. And I think you have to be optimistic. So I'm up, uh, innovation continues unbridled. And I think that we ain't seen nothing yet from the internet. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. This was a treasure trove of information for founders and for uh, investors. And we just so appreciate you making time. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.